right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. Now live. Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Para-X Radio Network. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. This is your host, Jason M. Caldwell, and I'm here this week with Zachary Louie. How are you doing this week, Zach? I'm doing great, Jason. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. We have once again battled back the demons of technical disaster. Yes, we Steph have. Steph is not our friends today, but we have made it work. Because that's what we to, do. Uh, I want to cover a couple quick announcements this week. What is going on right now? Um, Zach, tell people what's going on over at DoMagic.com right now. I know you're in the research phase. Oh, yeah. So, you know, with December 1st is the Meditative Acts Challenge. We're doing our research phase right now for the whole month. So the concept, if you don't know DoMagic, is 30 days of straight magical work or at least practice for 30 minutes a day where it's documented every day so you can get support from everyone that's in the challenge so with meditative acts it could be anything it could be mantra work it could be washing the dishes it could be breathing and walking any type of meditative act that is making you fully aware and present will suffice with this challenge uh for december 1st so if you haven't registered get on that because we're all about the practical results and making life changes so do magic.com everyone do magic with a k.com yes <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado zach has gotten us a very special guest um this is uh actually someone who worked very closely her husband wrote books that andrea has been using for quite a while and let's just say they've been very useful in some things that we've done privately so without further ado zach why don't you let everyone know who tonight's guest is so tonight's guest is sacha Bama ashley ferrand and she's been in the practices for quite a long time so she actually had christical uh christian mystical experiences at age 14 and then she started to get into the sanskrit and vedic practices quite intensely from there she got initiated from Sadhguru sat kavedas and she runs the temple of cosmic religion or she did and oh. her website is sanskrit mantras 
let's see, is that a .com? It is a .com. So SanskritMantras.com. She's worked with the late Ashley Ferran quite extensively, being his wife, and I'm really excited to hear all her explanations about mantras and how it can be used for healing effects and all these other things. So welcome to the show. Namaste. Um, Namaste. I have to make a couple little corrections. I Go right was ahead. never in charge of the Temple of Cosmic Religion because that is Sadhguru Sant Keshavadas and his uh, wife, but he's passed away, mm. Sadhguru Ramamacha. That's their organization. And okay. we have a different organization. And the, my website for selling books and things, not the temple website, is Sanskrit Mantra, not mantras. SanskritMantra.com. SanskritMantra.com. Yes. That yes. can make a big difference, actually. That, you might wind up somewhere you don't want to be. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. So... <clears throat> Really, I, I know that you want to really explain to people, um, make sure they understand your message. Let's get in first. What is a mantra? Well, first, a mantra is in Sanskrit. So it's never an affirmation in English um, or anything Western. But the ancient languages carry much more sound power. Um, one of them is Hebrew and definitely Sanskrit. So um, the mantras are in, the mantras will do something for you in Sanskrit that they cannot do in English because of the sound vibration. And that's important because the whole universe is made up of the divine, 100% of the universe, including our one quarter that's manifest, is made up of sound vibrations. And our chakras resonate to the sound vibrations. There are 50 letters in, in Sanskrit, some of which are like combination letters, it's a whole syllable. And there are 50 petals or spokes on chakras, one at the base of the spine through six, which is the third eye. And beyond that is... The crown chakra, they say the thousand-petaled lotus, which doesn't mean a thousand literally. It means you've reached enlightenment. But in order to remove karma, you say the mantra, and it little by tiny bit little will dissolve and release you from your karma. So that's how it works. And that's actually a good thing, because wouldn't it be really bad if people's karma started unleashing very rapidly? Um, it could be a shock to the system, the body-mind personality system, yes. But that's rare. <laughs> that's really rare. I mean, there are people who try to do things to force it, but... The truth is, if you look at some of the chat groups, everybody talks about they've reached enlightenment or blah, blah, blah. And I will tell you, anybody who says they've reached enlightenment definitely hasn't because they don't even know what it is. <laughs> why, why are you still having flame wars on the Internet if you're so enlightened? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. a good point. So, so, I mean, enlightenment would be 
either at the level of an avatar or a sadguru who are beings who come into this planet to help humanity, but they don't have any karma. In order to maintain a manifest body, which is dense, they may have to create some karma for themselves. It's like pretend karma, but it makes the, the little units clump so that they can actually manifest a body. Mm. When, when a person gets to enlightenment, they have essentially gone through a lot of stages where they've gotten rid of karma by doing good works and releasing it by other techniques. And the main thing is to, is to surrender the ego. Because the ego is the last hurdle. The one that the great swamis may trip themselves up on and like shoots and ladders, which is about karma, just drop right to the bottom again, start over. Ooh. So this really has to be an ongoing, ongoing lifetime process. Yes, but, it, you know, you could think that's like a job or hard to do. The thing about the mantras is the more you chant them, the better you like to chant them and the better you feel, so the more you want to chant them. It's kind of like... And, and, it's kind of like physically going to the gym. It really sucks at first, then you get addicted. Yep. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> something like that, but easier than going to the gym. That's true. So, yes, so. Um, you can Go ahead. a person can start chanting mantras, and it you it doesn't require a guru. At least that's not the teaching of our lineage. And I know that is the ancient teaching. And there was probably a time for that, but we're actually in a different era now. And the mantras will work if you just pick them up from a book and they're true mantras, not some gobbledygook like you can get off the Internet. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you get an initiation, what you get is the Shakti energy of the person initiating you. So first they have to have it. And they may acquire it from, like they had it from when they were born because they're really a high soul. Or they have it because of their practice during this lifetime. And then they pass it on. It's a Shakti transition. Transmission, rather. Shakti transmission. So now, that not what, you, what you get is their energy giving you a boost. Mm. Is not that Shakti transmission a feminine force of sorts? It is most definitely a feminine force, but uh, it's not restricted to women to be able to transmit. It's, it's a human force. It's okay. just that in the world of duality, there are male and female lunar and solar energies. And men have to work harder to get their kundalini to come up simply because women have have more shakti available in order to do, um, to conceive, carry a child, and take care of it. Because if you don't have any shakti energy, you can't do that. Uh, I know that Zach had a really good question about uh, the logistics of, of not being able to have a personal guru. 
Well, right. So, I mean, she was getting into a little bit about that, but the more specific question really would come down to, I know when it comes to more of the ancient Sanskrit, um, they're really particular around the vocalizations of the sounds, and if you're not doing the sound, it's completely wrong, and it'll give you a different vibration, hence a different intention or result. So what's your take on that, Satyabhama? It's true, but if you do pronounce it exactly right, which is not Krishnaya in a mantra, it's Krishnaya, but your intention is for a certain result, which may be spiritual or it may be healing or it may be prosperity, whatever your intention is, it will override your mistakes, and there are even mantras... um, that are taught in India that um, say, God, please forgive me if I've made any wrong intention or made any wrong pronunciation. Please accept my mantras. Mm. So otherwise, you know, the Tibetan mantras are very powerful, but they can't pronounce Sanskrit. It's, it's kind of a pidgin Sanskrit, and yet they're very, very powerful. Mm. Now, I know that in Western magic, I've gotten into many arguments with purists. So I would bet, I would bet, because I I fully believe in intention can override mistakes. Intention can override having every intricate detail correct. But I bet you've gotten into quite a bit of debates over the years about that. Not personally. (laughs) Um, Okay. You've been lucky. I see Indians um, on different chat groups who will um, talk about it in the in that traditional way, um, but that's really not what our gurus taught. Or you know, I've not been confront, confronted with it probably because I'm not Indian. Um, but our gurus, their whole mission, just like Vivekananda, just like Yogananda, and the disciples of Uh, Swami Shivananda, who came to America, all of them came to save the religion from its being forgotten in India. Mm. And that that doesn't look like it would be forgotten in the time of Vivekananda, but by the time we get to the 20th century, we have the beginnings of Indians getting a lot of Western education and thinking they're taught in school, if they have a secular Western education, that all religion, especially in science teachings, all religion is just superstition. So they just walk away from all of it. And it's not taught in India in the ways that we teach in the West, in the structurally speaking, because they don't have Sunday school or shul. So the children learn from their mother and then their father, and maybe some from the local priest who know but they are not scholars. The priests are not taught to be scholars. They may choose it later in life, but that's not how it goes. So most people in India don't know. They're, they're losing it. So um, that's why our guru came and taught. He said he came to teach the teachers, and he didn't want a big group. He did everything he could and to get in the way of having a big group. But he has had followers who learned the mantras, learned the pujas, 
and now teach them to others. Like, we have a two uh, self-study courses. On One is on learning the mantras and becoming a mantra teacher to others. And the other one is learning the puja so you can chant it properly and, and perform it properly and um, make it available to others. And for those people who are certified in after exams in each of these, if they get two certifications, they become a priest in our religious organization, which is Sanatana Dharma Satsang. Sanatana Dharma is the true name of Hinduism, and it means the ancient right way or uh, righteous path. And Satsang is fellowship. Mm. So um, I have a, a new temple because I moved it from Oregon. I have a new temple in near the University of New Mexico, um, right off Route 66 in Albuquerque. And um, I do pujas there, and we do meditations. And then I travel and teach workshops, most of which were written by Namadeva Acharya, Thomas Ashley Ferran. But I've written one on Shiva and one on Krishna. So, mm. sort of like, have bag, will travel. Right. So, I mean... So, for the works that you wrote on Shiva and Krishna, I mean, can you go in a little more in depth for the audience? Just because uh, I'm not sure for the listeners if they have any background who Shiva and Krishna are. Right. Um, well, in a sense, they are teaching constructs. And in another sense, they are divine ones. Not the complete divinity but emanations thereof. Uh, Shiva's name actually does not uh, appear anywhere in the Vedas, but some gurus decided at some point, sages, gurus, that they wanted to personify consciousness, consciousness as consciousness. So they gave it a name, and the word is Shiva, which means auspiciousness. And then they make stories around it, so that all of the various stories that come out in the workshops that Namadeva wrote, the ones that I wrote, come from the Puranas. But the Puranas were only written six, six to 8,000 years ago as teaching stories, so some of them differ from each other a bit. Um, before that, they didn't have Puranas. Quite different from the Darwin theory, the Indian theory, the Hindu theory of cosmology is when the, the one quarter was created, it was all divine. Everybody knew everything, millions and millions of couplets of verses. Um, everybody was completely telepathic. And that went on for millions of years until we get closer, it, but, it, but it devolved with each era. So as you get closer to our era in Dwapara Yuga, so that's uh, going back about a million years, and you get laid into Dwapara, you get the avatars coming, and you get them teaching, and you get the stories about them, and they have to write them down, because people can't remember. So that's where you begin to get the writing of them. And now we're in an era, era that's called the Dark Age, which means spiritually dark, and it's sometimes confused with the name Kali, but it isn't Kali, double-A Kali, it's Kili. It's the short I in Sanskrit. 
and it means dark, dark spiritually and nastier. Um, but within that long age, which is 535,000 years, and we're about six, 8,000 years into it, we're in, in the short cycle, we're in an, two upswings. One is the astrological short cycle in which we're in the Aquarian age, which is a really good cycle of um, doing things in groups. It's more spiritual cycle than the past one we were in in the last 2,000 years. And at the same time, the sun has 12, 12,000 year cycles. And in that cycle, we have moved from the age of the soul guru, the soul teacher, which is where you get some of those strict teachings, into savitri, which is mass enlightenment. Mm. So within, it's not all bad news, Paul's been saying, that if anybody wants to grow spiritually, the wind is at our back. Well, that's good to know. So, I mean... Being in the dark age, is there any particular mantras you could recommend just to help people kind of work on themselves and get more enlightened and just kind of resolve the karma slowly or quickly if they want to? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes and yes. Um, the, there is one worship service that is prescribed for this dark age, and it's called the Satyanarayana Puja. And that puja worships honors the um, Vedic creator, Satyanarayana, and his Shakti, who is Mahalakshmi. So he, Narayana comes in and begins the creation as a unitary body, you know, both genders in one, you know, and, and not a body, so no reproductive organs. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about the energies. And then they come, start to create and they become Vishnu, which is the, all of the avatars originate from, and all of the Shakti of the avatar female um, come from Lakshmi. Mm. So that puja celebrates them and has a lot of teachings. It has stories at the end. It's the only puja that you have to sit for the stories at the end. And then, and, and a whole teaching about... Um, giving up your ego. And in this dark age, the worst thing that's going on is ego, the hard ego, and all of the abuses that come from being egotistical. I mean, you have to have some ego to exist, to realize that you are a, a separate person. It's not that ego. It's the ego that's egotistical and selfish. And then when it comes to the mantras, the mantra, um, which is called the master mantra and is uh, children at about age eight are initiated in India into this mantra mostly boys still but some girls um, and that mantra is the Gayatri mantra it is represented as five shaktis so it has five heads and ten arms and they all have very beautiful faces and great energy um, but that's not really what the mantra is about. It is about, it, it is, it, it says, so much information used to get it out, um, <laughs> that, that it is the mantra that contains the energies of all other mantras. Mm. 
And if you do the full classical long gayatri, which I'll chant for you in a sec, you're, you are running your energy from the base of your spine through all of your chakras and beyond up through what um, Madame Blavatsky in Theosophy calls the antakarana, that cord that lin- links you to the divine which, of course, is not exactly physical, and then brings that energy down your spine and through the chakras again, asking for enlightenment. Now, most Indians will chant the short one, which takes the energy through chakras one, two, three, and then jumps. But we were taught to do the long one. But as, you, as I will say the names, I'll say, Om, Boo. Um, Boo is earth, is the earth plane. And there are seven lokas, locations of light, which is referred to in the Bible, too, in the Old Testament. Um, and I will say their names and pull my energy up through each one, through our sun, to the great central sun and the place where the shining ones, the devas, dwell. All this divine, loving energy and pull it back down into myself. So here it goes. <clears throat> Om Boo, Om Boo-ha, Om Swaha, Om Maha, Om Janaha, Om Tapaha, Om Satyam, Om Tatsavitur Varanyam, Bargo Devasya Dimahi, Dio Yonaha Prachodayatu. That's a long mantra. <laughs> takes a long time to do. And I think that's the main reason why the Indians do the short one, just because it's shorter. And that one is Om Bur Bhagavaswaha, Om Tatsavitur Varenyam, Bargo Devasyadi Mahi, Dio Yonaha, Prachodayat. There they are. Oh, wow. So I have to ask you in practice, have, have you seen a difference between those two? Because you're you're saying that the Indians nowadays prefer the shorter one. If, in your personal opinion, if you do the shorter one, are you losing something? Yes, you are. But most people in this era are not developed fully in all seven levels of each of the lower chakras. Okay. One, two, three to the solar plexus. So we need to work on that anyway. And if you jump, you're still doing something that no other mantra does, which is to take that energy all the way up past the crown chakra, the, the enlightenment chakra at the top of your head, and then all the way up to the divine and bringing that energy down. All the other mantras stop at the third eye center. Ah. So. I have given some thought and experiment to what mantra would help one not to get dementia slash Alzheimer's. And the answer is that mantra, short or long, if you chant that mantra, you are exercising your brain with spiritual energy and keeping your health good Mm. in every way. Ah, And that's part of the, you know, what you get with the, um, a lot of practice of the Gayatri mantra either type, will give you a huge gold aura of protection, will give you good health, it will give you every city or 
paranormal power you might want, but more importantly, the wisdom to use it properly. So I have I have to also ask you if um, does one have to be really good at visualization and feeling the energy no. move up and down, or is no. just sitting and practicing the mantra enough? Yes. No, okay. you don't have to be good at any of those things. And we all have different uh, ways of learning and perceiving. Some people are very auditory. Namadeva was very auditory. He was in touch with the Akasha, and he would hear it in his ear. Some of us are more visual. Some of us are neither one, but they still get information and grow in different ways. So you just have to honor your own vehicle and go with it. Those mantras work, period. Nice. And if they, you know, and it, and here's an interesting thing. There are some people who will be very clear in the air of pro- air, area of prosperity. So they can chant a few mantras and suddenly business is going really well. And other people, not so much. And often that's people who are spiritual but who took a power vow of poverty in past lives and they haven't given it up they don't realize that but they haven't given it up so they have to work on themselves and um, Namadeva wrote a whole um, set of mantras for prosperity about a dozen of them <clears throat> which is on a CD or a download and it's mantra therapy for prosperity but a couple of those mantras in there just to dig out that old vow so then another person um, might be not so fast with the prosperity for various reasons, and yet very clear about um, either mind things or good health. You could uh, chant and get well right away. What I'm trying to say is everybody is so different, and we're even so different, we don't know what to expect ourselves until we try it. Because we don't know what our karma is, and we don't know who we are. And that is because of the maya, that layer of, like, fog that makes karma work. Because if you come into a body and you know what your karmic chore is that you, you have set up with your guides beforehand, it's like an actor who knows the end of the play. You're not so emotionally invested, so you're not really going to do the job. So we have this fog and then we can do what we have set up for ourselves to learn, because none of it is punishment. It's school. So we get to go to school in each life and learn the lessons that we didn't learn in the past lives. And rarely, you know, do we get so much karma that we just can't handle it at all, because we don't set it up that way for ourselves. And there are people, I mean, here's another dimension of what I'm talking about. This is such an interesting place. It's like the bar in Star Wars. Because on this planet, coming here because this is the only one of the places in the universe that has chakras that we know of, we can make great strides. So we get higher souls coming in from astral planets where... They're in stasis because they want to grow. We get newbie humans coming in. We get people who are old souls 
we get people who are making their transition from the lower lokas, which are very materialistic. They're not hell, just very materialistic. And eventually people realize that's not satisfying, so they want more. So now they're coming into the earth location and having to learn how we are here. So it's really, really, really interesting. And most of us don't know who we are. People who come in from people who are more like avatars, but they're called avidutes, they can come in and they know exactly. And they may have come in, ava means from outside our universe. Um, They may have come in not fully enlightened, but it is said of them that most of them will stay because they take compassion on human beings and they stay to help. So some of them have become great gurus like uh, more recently, Swami Shivananda, who uh, of Rishikesh, he was an avidu. But <coughs> guru is a job. Guru is a job. They don't all take on the job of guru. Guru is a job. You come in and you say, "I'm going to dedicate my life to being a teacher." That's the job. And well, guru certainly not an easy life back. either. Really. No, <laughs> no, but um, you you may be at the level where you have more insight so you don't get your knickers in the twist so much. The guru is a principle, not a person. So that there is that longing that's within us. And my husband would teach that we have a new, newer chakra in the brain that's called the guru chakra, which is becoming more and more dominant, meaning we are seeking more, more people are seeking. And the divine is always reaching out to us in loving energy. And it wasn't until a long time after the creation of the universe that a being came who is called Dachatreya, who is said to be the first guru to take a body. But that's at the heavenly level. He was not um, person on the earth that was long before earth earth planet so you can know? you elaborate Jason you want to go or well I was just going to say that <clears throat> I was going to throw in that yes I believe that we are in a time when people are seeking a lot more and they don't know what the hell they're seeking and it's funny because time and time again I hear these stories about how the Christian church tries to latch on to people having that, that seeking mentality of craving something that they don't know what, and the church comes along and tries to go, oh, this is what you're seeking. Here, take this. And time and time again, oh, that's nice, but that's not it. And people have to get out of that trap to be able to go and seek out what it is they are seeking. I'm just throwing my two cents in there. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't disagree, but... The problem with Christianity, which is something that makes me very sad, is that what Jesus and his followers taught was completely changed by Caesar. And Mm -hmm. the the whole church was taken over and co-opted by the Romans to make people, you know, they were were killing them, then they decided it would be smarter to just co-opt them. And they did that. And so lots of the teachings have nothing to do with what Jesus taught. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, it has a powerful hold, but it isn't. On the other hand, there are very powerful, insightful Christian mystics that have been yes. influential. And one of them, of course, is St. Francis. And um, there are Franciscans who are teaching the more spiritual side. They're fo- really following him and are not caught in the trap that you're talking about. There is so, definitely a I mean, spiritual practice in Christianity as opposed to just following a set of do's and don'ts. Correct. Right. No, and, and you know, how you get to free yourself, I cannot say. You know, I. funny enough, uh, Namadeva and I were both born into nominally Christian families who weren't interested in going to church. Mm-hmm. so that we skip the dogma. Um, as a child, I chose to go. I used to, you know, annoy my mother because she didn't want to take me. Um, I went to the Episcopal Church, which was the one in my neighborhood, and it was the one she'd gone to as a child, but she just never got interested in it. Um, and Namadeva's um, Grandmother used to take him sometimes to the Methodist Church, but either way, we didn't get caught in it, and we just kept seeking until we found what nourished us. Mm. And both of us, it was not... um, I kept seeking and stayed out for a while, and it was actually... I met Namadeva and Sadhguru Sankeshavadas the same night, um, the first weekend of December... 80, when I had had an inner vision calling to go to D.C. in a way that didn't make any sense to me until I was there a couple of months. And I had friends who had um, met Muktananda and other gurus, and I was fascinated by the idea. So I wanted to meet one, and I met somebody who lived there. And, you know, one thing led to another, and a year and and about a week after we met, we married. It's just how it goes, right? But we were actually aware that we had been put together. I mean, not that minute, but like within that year, we became aware that we had been put together to continue the Guru's work and that we'd volunteered before we came into this current lives. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was very awesome. Well, you know, it was hard to lose him, real hard to lose him. Mm-hmm. It's been over seven years now. But he cheerfully passed the the torch and gave me a powerful initiation, nothing like I'd had before from anybody else, directly at the solar plexus. And he passed his and the lineage energy to me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing. Ah. So, I mean, speaking of transmissions and such, I know generally... When it comes to more mantric work, there's a few different schools on it. So, I mean, you got the Vedic Sanskrit side, and then there's the Tantra side. What do you view the differences between those two currents are, if there is any? There is. The concentration... Well, let me say this about Tantra, because there's so much misunderstanding about right. it. It's not about sex. <laughs> not about <Yes>. sex. <laughs> it's to become a Siddha is to be able to have control over um, earth, water, air, fire, and ether. Mm. 
so that, like Jesus, because he had uh, he had all those cities, those powers. So that's what that's about. Now, for the tantric worshippers who are daily concentrated, they are wholly caught up in the shaktis of the devis and do various practices for Divine Mother. Mm-hmm. And the true ones are really not doing a lot of sex. They're doing a lot of... They have great knowledge about the energies that are within the chakras, and they can uh, stimulate a particular petal on a particular chakra, and then the next one doing the ceremonies, which I've attended. I have a friend who's a uh, tantric priest, and there's a a tantric temple up in Rochester, which is um, dedicated to Raja Rajeshwari. And Raja Rajeshwari is a new name for the combination of all of the goddesses. And if somebody wants to look up that um, place, it's uh, srividya.org, B-I-D-Y-A, which means wisdom, knowledge, srividya.org. So it's, it's in India, but there, there's a, a lovely priest guru there. Mm-hmm. And um, so th- the practices are somewhat different. How much the beliefs are about uh, cosmology, um, Namadeva would teach from the Lakshmi Tantra, and in that book, which is not ancient, it's more recently written, Lakshmi speaks in her own voice, and she talks about what energy she used and she took this energy and that energy and put it together and made a third one, and then this one and that one, and put it together and made another third one, and then she combined the two, and so she goes through all of this stuff, and it's totally fascinating. Uh, Namadeva wrote a workshop that's called um, The Mysterious Kundalini, and it's all about all that energy and all of those Shakti goddesses. It's one I particularly enjoy teaching. So and good. then, right. And then, where does the Buddhist mantras relate to Sanskrit um, in your experience? Because I know they do have a different feel to them. Um, yeah, but um, like Jesus, Buddha, Gautama Buddha, was a prince who saw the problems of his era. Mm -hmm. and came to reform the Hinduism of his time. Not too sure he planned to start another religion, just like Jesus didn't. But at the time, um, in Hindu philosophy, it is taught that in different eras, different sectors of society become corrupt. In our time, it would be the merchants, including the bankers, in their t- in uh, Buddha's time, it was the priests. So the priests weren't really religious. They were getting rich off uh, doing mantras to hurt the neighbor's cow and doing mantras and not really caring about people. And so that's why his first level of teaching is you don't need it. You don't need the priests. You don't need mantras. And he taught differently. Krishna said that the main thing of his teaching was lean on me, follow me, 
merge into me. I am divine and all love and just merge with me. So Buddha comes along some several thousand years later and he says, it's a do-it-yourself kit. If you are miserable, it's because of your own cravings, which is another way of talking about karma. Um, so, you know, take some distance from it, stop craving, and be happy. And so he had like four um, different teachings as he went on, and the last and more complex ones were saved in Tibet. But whereas they don't do mantras in what we used to call Indochina, mm-hmm. those, those several countries, um, in China they do mantras. Yes. And so they do the one that they do for Kuan Yin is Om Namo Kuan Yin Pusa. And that is Sanskrit garbled. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it it's all powerful. It, it is, if you're sincere. The main uh, saying of Hinduism is God is one. Many are the names. Many are the names of God. So any way you worship, Guruji would teach, any way that you worship, be sincere about it. Do it a hundred percent and you will get to your goal of enlightenment. I just like Hinduism. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I like it. You know, the, the pranayama and the mantras and the pujas are tools that you have in Hinduism and in Tibetan uh, Buddhism, in Buddhism in general, mm-hmm. that help you to get rid of your karma, help you to understand what's going on, help you to get rid of your karma. So, um, I like something that has tools. It's a practical thing. You know, there's so a set wanna, of... Mo- Go ahead. No, I want to talk about <clears throat> experiences that can be had during this mantra work versus control, because I have found, in participating in some of these practices over the years, that one can have very profound visionary experiences during extended periods of mantra work, but a personal problem that I've had, I can lose control and to the outsider, my mantra becomes something pretty insane. So, how does one experience what could be experienced during the mantra work without actually losing the mantra or focusing so hard not to lose the mantra that they miss out on the experience? Are you talking about, you know, where where you may have, um, like, I, I've seen it happen, and it's happened to me, too, in, in chanting in mantra groups, particularly when Sadhguru Sankeshwadas was present, where people would start twitching around and moving around and um, even crying out, that kind of thing. Is that what you're talking about? No, so, like, I mean, more like not twitching and crying out, but seeing, like, through the third eye visual experiences seeing very vivid visions um a couple times even having experiences like speaking seemingly hallucinatorily speaking with the deity that the puja was dedicated to um 
but at the yeah, same time, having them. the problem sure. of, of physically losing the mantra during these deep experiences. Well, I think that's pretty normal. Okay. You know, you're going to get into your vision and your experience, um, and, you know, the mantra is taking you um, on that boat ride or airplane, mm-hmm. <laughs> pick your metaphor, and and you ride it out till it passes, and then you may go back to doing your mantra, or you may be feeling totally wasted and go to sleep for a while, which would be very, very normal. Okay, so what you're telling me is it's not abnormal, this problem that I'm having, where I actually physically lose the mantra. Not a problem. <laughs> See, because <laughs> I, I, I became very self-conscious about it, like, okay, where'd the mantra go? It's not you a know? problem. It's an experience, not a problem. Okay. I mean, if, if you get that kind of um, reaction to mantras, you know it's working. It's generally, although not always, because it can come from different um, sources, but all of that twitching around in the body and everything is the kundalini moving. The visual things, maybe kundalini, maybe other aspects of your spiritual self. But it's all normal. It's just all you're going through changes because the mantras, the pranayama, the work is freeing you up. It's good. Okay. Well, thank you. So, Jason, you've had experiences, not problems. Right. I I don't consider them problems. Um, I could tell you... I could tell I mean, you something very scary you. that happened during a homo once, if you want to hear it. Oh, yeah, I remember yeah, but that I mean, if, you know, if people, <laughs> if people look at you oddly, that's their concern. You know, it's their not understanding. Or sometimes they're looking at you because they wish they were going somewhere, too. So, I mean, you, you mentioned homo, Jason, and I know Satsurbama was talking about pujas. I mean, what is the difference? Because from an outside standard, you're like, okay, one's a fire and one's working with water. But what's the energetic effects you find in doing those workings? Um, well, the puja is it's what the mass is copied from. Mm. So it's images, you know, statues to represent the god or, or photos or whatever to represent an aspect of God, because God is like a diamond, and all of these names we give it are the facets on a cut diamond. It's not mm-hmm. the whole thing. And, and um, which is why, you know, sectarianism is silliness. But, um, so then the image with chanting going on is bathed, and that's the first part of a puja, and then there's an offering or sacrifice as the second part of the puja. And in most pujas, one is offering um, food, offering red rice, which symbolizes, the red symbolizes shakti, but you're offering it rice and you color it because you're showing it's a sacrifice. You're not going to eat that food. Mm-hmm. Or it's uh, the daisies, the goddesses, like petals. So they like to be showered with flower petals. Um, in if you're doing a fire ceremony, which is usually called yedna, sometimes in northern Sanskrit they'll say yagya, um, 
instead of offering so much of the petals and the rice, which a little bit of is offered, you're offering spoons full of ghee, sesame oil, whatever, into the fire. And that is a Vedic fire ceremony. Now, a homa is a little bit different because it's usually done actually in people's homes. Um, and it's offering, it's a fire ceremony, but they're, all, they're offering cow dung, which usually in America is, you know, purified and has no scent. Um, in India, they smear their house on the floor, which may be dirt, with cow dung, and the walls and the outside because it um, kills or makes the path it kills pathogens. So viruses, antibiotics, people breathe that smoke and it's healing, and the oh, smoke wow. is all over that house. Right. I went to one that was in. Southern California, and she wouldn't open the windows, and there was black smoke all over the house. We were joking. We finally just opened the windows ourselves. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, okay. Um, but you know, often they're they're done outside because it is smoky and messy, and it's a shorter service. It's not a Vedic fire ceremony. It's a slightly different, shorter fire ceremony okay. it's called the home. Ah, it's all good. Okay. I've I've learned a good difference then. Thank you. Yes, you have. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know if I want to procure procure a dealer of cow manure just yet, but we'll we'll, we'll consider this. Uh, you can find one online where you can get hundreds of piles of it. I mean, you can't buy it in a pound of beef. <laughs> you have to order it, and you have to buy a whole lot of it, and then what do you do with it? Right, right. Do the ceremony. I was like, oh, God, she was trying to sell it to us. You know, it's like, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but I know somebody who used to go every, you know, once a month, homeless people will do, and they usually do it outside, and, and it's very good energy, and it's a communal experience. All of these ceremonies are communal experiences, mm. and... um that's a good thing because humans don't survive if they don't have a community. But also, in satsang, um, the teaching is that if you want to be a spiritual person, you need to hang out with other spiritual people because people influence each other, and if you're hanging out with your old friends and they're negative people, they're retarding your growth. So you need to hang out with spiritual people. But if you are in a, say you're in a weekly chanting group, and there are 10 people in somebody's living room, monthly, weekly, whatever it is, when you chant together, those people who are clear in some area help the ones who are not. And conversely, the ones who are not in that same area are helping the first person where they're not clear. So that it is taught that if you chant together and there are 10 people, the value of those mantras chanted, the effect of them, is if you personally chanted 10 times 10. 10 people, 10 times 10. 30 people times 30. So the bigger crowd you get, the more potent it is. But it works. Yeah. And people who've nice. been chanting together for some time all get better quicker. 
and whatever they want to get better in. Mm. Mm, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting that you would say, because I know there's a lot of people that may go solo practitioner on things, but bringing in this communal aspect does bring in a different twist, at least from a perspective for most people, I would think, because it either goes they're doing solo practices or they're just doing communal practices, I find in my experience. Both is better. Mm -hmm. Both is better. I mean, um, it's very good to do your daily practice. In India, it is recommended that you do it at the Sandhya. And the Sandhya is the crack between day and night that occurs at dawn and dusk. So people will get up just before the dawn and do their Gayatri mantra, their Gayatri sadhana, which is practice. And um, some people will do another sadhana in the evening, whether it's Gayatri or something else. Um, And that's really good. Doing a personal practice is good. Doing 40-day sadhanas because you want prosperity or you need healing or you have family problems you want to ameliorate, whatever your intention is. So those things are good. Regular daily practice of doing them is good with counting them with the where the rosary derives from. It's 108 beads in India and 54 in Catholicism, not a coincidence. And that is because there are 108 major nadis in our bodies. A nadi is a non-physical nerve, of which there are actually thousands in the body, like there are thousands of nerves. But this is the main channels, and the idea is you want to get the mantra energy and the release of it through all of your major channels every time you chant. So you do a minimum of 108 of whatever you're doing. So I would recommend that you do 108, one mala, of a Ganesha mantra. Then it's pretty much the most popular Ganesha mantra, which is actually it's uh, Ganesha, who's also a unitary body. It's Ganesha's feminine side. It's Om Gam Ganapatiye Namaha. That particular mantra focuses your mind. Because we all have monkey mind, and we're thinking about this, and we're thinking about that, and we have to take a little time to settle in, right? So this makes it quicker to settle in. And it could be the one you're doing for the day, but it probably isn't. You just start with it, and then you start your regular practice, which makes it go better. And then however long you chant, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour, whatever you do is good. It's good. It's just like they say about meditation, silent meditation. You know, 10 minutes is good. And then, you know, you have other times when you will do... You know, you go to your chanting group, which is fellowship and the effect of the mantras. So that's great. Great combination. So in the last couple minutes, because I know that Zach has to run away here at the top of the hour, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell us if uh, any kind of public events you have going on here soon that you'd like to know, let the community know about. Um, I'm doing, the next puja I'm doing is the planetary puja. And that puja, um, 
worships sequentially or propitiates or puts out the tremendous energy of each of the nine Jyotish planets. So in India, that's technically seven planets plus the north node and the south node of the moon. And they each have a mantra, and they have an astotra, which is 108 names and powers of each of them. So I wind up doing 108 times 9 chanted while offering, this is a water puja, while offering uh, first the water and then for each of the 108 times 9, we'll be offering rice. The, the real thing is, um, if you go to a puja, unless you know puja, you don't chant, just the priest chants, but you sit in that sea of divine energy and it brings healing and relief. And the mantras um, that are planetary mantras bring relief in those things that affect you because of your chart. So if your car chart is in conflict, uh, say you've got Saturn problems, you chant the Saturn mantra, of which there's actually two, one for spiritual purposes and one for physical healing. And the others have um, not two like that, but they have one or a tantric version which has bijas, shakti bijas, and you chant those, and it assists how you receive the energy of your chart, because you can't change your chart. But that part of karma, the, the parabta karma, which you cannot change, you can change your uh, reception of it to the point where Swami Kriyananda of Ananda, um, a Yogananda devotee, would say, you could have the karma to fall down the stairs, but if you do your spiritual practices, which in their case is a pranayama, you may only stub your toe. Hmm. Yeah. Well, hey. <laughs> Thank you. So very, I'm doing that on the much. full moon. Let me just tell you, I'm, I'm doing that on the full moon, uh, December third at two p.m. in Albuquerque. Mm. And nice. Um, I don't know if you can, you know, put up my website, or I have a separate website for the temple. If you can put it up, I'll send it to you, and you can put it up on your... Yeah, if you would, send send that to Zach, and we'll put it up on the website this week. Yep. Great. That would be great. So anybody who can come, and there are some people who will send me money in advance, because I will pray for those people individually before the puja, and then they will be remembered in the puja. And I'm getting good feedback that it's helping them. So if anybody wants to participate that way, this All right. is no issue. All right. Well, Most thank you. Excellent. Thank you. I'm going to let the Illuminist take us on out and stay on the line. i got a couple things to tell you after the outro. Thank you much. Okay.